think those all look okay. I wish your neighbor would start shooting them off again so we could get the real deal. talk about culture, politics, southern stuff that's happening this week, and this is our first, um, this counts as a live episode? Yeah, I think so. Live episode, uh, it's our special 4th of July episode being recorded from David's front porch in Rockford, uh, but minus Chad, who is going all in on the barbecue today, so we've forgiven him and given him time off. So, uh, I'm Wes Cheek, I'm here, and so is... David Dykes. Oh. So we were talking about earlier today, I don't know the difference between a, not a huckleberry tree, not a mulberry tree, a, the tree in your front yard. No, a hemlock tree. A hemlock tree and a pine tree. A hemlock tree and a pine tree. What's the difference between a hemlock tree and a pine tree? Well, I mean, there's all different sorts of pines. I, there's probably a few different types of hemlocks. Hemlocks usually grow higher up. And this one, my mom put out in the front yard, and somehow it hasn't been killed by the winters here since uh, she put it in, partly because it's protected by a bunch of other trees growing up around it. Also, hemlock, I don't know if it's the same sort of hemlock that um, Socrates drank or not, uh, but it's much worse for you than pine. To drink? Yes. How would you end up drinking it? The needles? Um, I think you brew a tea out of the needles, Maybe. Um, I know Hemlock killed um, Socrates, and Pine might have killed Yule Gibbons, I'm not sure. He was a guy who used to eat a lot of natural plant foods until he died of uh, stomach cancer. Like Jim Fix with running? Yeah, yeah. He was, he, but he used to do a commercial for grape nuts that started out with, ever eat a pine tree? Some parts are edible. They're probably not advisable. So I should say this is the most southern episode of the show we've ever done because within a 10-second dash... Well, first we're sitting on a porch in rocking chairs. Uh, fireworks are going off. Probably some guns are going off somewhere in the city. And within a 10-second dash, I could get my hands on a shotgun, a revolver, and a pit bull. Also, we've got cicadas and katydids in the background. I'm drinking sweet tea out of Jim Dykes' whiskey tumbler. <laughs> I'm drinking La Croix, which does not count. But I drank six beers for lunch. Uh, so there was like a few things I wanted to talk about today besides the hemlock tree, which I didn't realize. I thought was a pine tree until today. Um, the other things we wanted to talk about was... So this month, we are all over Appalachia. We were, we're in Knoxville, well, near Knoxville right now. We were in North Carolina last week, and there's um, a lot of stuff doing with that I want to talk about. But first, we were at Mars Hill last week, Mars Hill, North Carolina, and there was a historical marker, which I think you saw it too, right? The Civil War marker? I did, yeah. We might have stood and read it together. Maybe I read it No, you read it with Chad, and then I asked you about it later. (coughs) But the really interesting thing to me about it was that it specifies from the outset that the Civil War or secession in the South were not particularly popular in that area. Uh, and that um, 
some people did join the Confederate Army during those years, and that Mars Hill was a strategic location, so they got a hundred men from the a detachment of the 64th North Carolina Infantry. Keith's detail were posted there um, during the first years of the Civil War, but that they weren't that enthusiastic, and they wrote to the governor of North Carolina. Um, so here is Home Guard Commander General John W. McElroy wrote to the governor of North Carolina, Zebulon B. Vance, quite a name, in April 1864, and he said, I have 100 men at this place to guard against uh, Kirk, who is the Union colonel, of Laurel, and cannot reduce the force. In fact, it seems to me that there is a determination of the people in this country generally to do no more service in the cause, which I thought was pretty great. <laughs> so they were not an enthusiastic <coughs> supporters of the secession, and then they eventually left their post to go scavenge for food, it said. So, yeah. Yeah, that seems pretty typical of um, um, Civil War service around Appalachia, that um, a lot of people went Union, and I don't think anybody was super enthusiastic for the Confederacy. <laughs> For a few reasons, one of which just being that it's not the sort of land that you build plantations on, so there was virtually no slavery here. I mean, there were some, definitely there were some, but uh, it wasn't nearly on the scale that you found it throughout the rest of the South. Well, that makes it it's a different kind of uh, landscape, so a different kind of agriculture, I would think. See, a plantation wouldn't really make sense in Appalachia, I wouldn't guess. No. Subsistence farming, I guess. <clears throat> I'm not sure if I told this story on the podcast before, but... Do it again. One of our 10,000, slightly less than 10,000 listeners might have heard it. Um, well, there goes an airplane going over all the... Um, it's nice. This is atmosphere. But, um... But it's the 4th of July, and that's the National Guard base, so this is the most patriotic thing that's happened on our podcast. Yeah, it could well be. Um, but, um, um, my great-great-grandfather... Uh, snuck off in the night from the farm that he grew up on and joined up with other boys in Union County, which is called Union County for that reason, and um, went north, traveled by night. And the story I hear is that by the time they got close to the border, there were so many of them that they didn't have to travel by night anymore. And they got up to Kentucky and uh, enlisted in the Union Army up there and became the first Tennessee Cavalry, I think. Um, it's on his it's on his grave marker up in Union County near Luttrell. So they got the uh, privilege of being on the right side of history, which is always nice. Yep. So, so speaking of that, there's also down the road here in uh, Maryville, or Merville, or I've been double corrected and told that say Merville is to assume that people there can't say Maryville and that lots of people say Maryville. Well, they don't say it, uh, it exactly like Maryville, but yeah, okay, Maryville. That there is a historical marker there on the Greenway. I was reading yesterday, and it specifies that this area was uh, Quaker, or around near this area was Quaker, and so that they were abolitionists from the early 1800s, and that Maryville was occupied by Union supporters, and then some Confederate supporters snuck in and tried to burn down their courthouse and ended up burning a lot of people's houses down because the wind was blowing the wrong direction. And it describes it some ways. I'm like, be that abominable fire. Whoa, there it was. Yep. That, that abominable fire. Oh, that's definitely a handgun. That's a gun. We'll just hope they're not shooting this way. <laughs> Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> anyway, and so uh, <coughs> just from that end, I think you also said that that area was also, or further down, was part of the Underground Railroad. Yeah, around Louisville, which used to be called, um, or, or in Friendsville, that used to be called Quakertown. Uh, I read when I was a teenager about that. Don't worry, they've got a, a um, bow target set up. I'm sure that's what they're shooting at. One hopes, which is in front of the cemetery. Yeah. Appropriate. Um, no, I mean, I just we've talked about that a lot on the show. But it, So I, I saw that historical marker, and I was going back to the parking lot where I parked, and the car next to me had a, a rebel flag sticker. It was actually in memoriam for somebody who died, but it was a big rebel flag sticker. So it seemed one of those, again, where it's... Uh, heritage over hatred, but they're choosing one very particular heritage over many other possible ones. Well, and that's um, the, maybe the continuous or the coda of the story I was telling about my great-great-grandfather mm-hmm. is that on his farm, there's a rental property that belongs to my cousin, and right now it's covered all over with uh, rebel flags by the renter. And um, um, my brother was telling me that if my great-great-grandfather was around, he would definitely go and take those flags down, um, uh, probably with some force. Mm. So that leads us into the other thing I wanted to talk about today. Whoa, Jesus Christ. That's a big gun. Yeah, that one sounds a little bigger. Um, All right. We're not returning friendly fire today. Uh, the other story was today there was a news article about uh, archaeologists um, who were excavating Sally Hemings' quarters in Monticello, and there's been there was some argument. I believe that the news article labeled her as his consort or mistress, and some people were upset because it didn't describe her clearly as someone who was his possession and enslaved by him so that they couldn't possibly have a consensual relationship. Um, and then I believe some people were on Twitter arguing that it was entirely possible that maybe we don't understand that they were having a consensual relationship, which they argued until someone else brought up the fact that Sally Hemings was 14 when they started being involved. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm kind of... I, <coughs> I'm of the opinion that it's very impossible to have... Very impossible. Uh, not actually a term you can use. But, Impossible for to have a consensual relationship with someone that you are also enslaving. Uh, and certainly if they're 14. <laughs> if they're 14. Well, I mean, if they're 34, it's probably impossible, too. I mean, we could sit around and suppose, like, maybe they fell in love uh, in this uh, crazy setting in this time period. But, I mean, I don't I don't think that's things that we should sit around supposing, right? I mean, All right. It's like I, there's no way to uh, establish that or understand that. I think... Uh, um, and it seems like wish, maybe wishful thinking to make it okay. Right. Well, that's why Thomas Jefferson is such a difficult figure. Here we are on the 4th of July. And he is such a, like, kind of an eminent genius on so many levels and such a horrible person on so many levels because he can never plead that he didn't know better. Yeah. Because he always knew better. He was a smart guy, and he, he talked about, like, the evils of tyranny and the evils of oppression and then just couldn't see fit to not own people. I don't know what he had to say about the personhood of Africans. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not a Jefferson scholar, and I think he had some complex thoughts on it, at least North Africans. Yeah. 
you know, uh, but I don't really, I haven't read enough of his personal stuff to say if he had, I think he had a lot of stuff that was like kind of dithering back and forth, like, well, certainly these people are human beings, but certainly they're different from us. I think there's a lot of hemming and hawing. Was he the one who entered into the uh, treaty with the Barbary yes. pirates? Yes, and he wrote the letter, with a yeah. very eloquent letter, saying that the muscle men are not the enemy and, and whatnot. So that's why I say certainly North Africans, we kind of yeah. know his, his feelings on. But this is, uh, yeah, I guess with Jefferson, it's one of those times I feel comfortable saying um, having a Marxist outlook makes things a lot easier because we can always say it's the the dialectic is complicated, right? Like you can have be an enormous force for good and an enormous force for evil at the same time. Yeah, you don't have to be one or the other. And, and Jefferson is such an eminent figure that is eminent spread out in lots of directions, and that he was eminently horrible and eminently uh, remarkable. In the same in the same kind of breath, yeah. Anyway, that's my Jefferson spiel. Anything <laughs> else with Jefferson or being shot? At. <laughs> I don't think I have a Jefferson spiel. I don't. Uh, uh, it's okay not to. Yeah. I think maybe because I'm in architectural history, I have to see him as a eminent genius. Well, I remember when I was a kid going to Monticello and being really impressed there. Even with the things that didn't seem like they totally worked, it seemed like um, uh, just trying them was pretty spectacular. There was something in the front, in the very front, by the front doors, like counterweights. He's he the dumbwaiter, the first dumbwaiter ever. <clears throat> Maybe it was a dumbwaiter. Was mm -hmm. there a clock or something in the front? I'm trying to think. I don't know. But yeah, anyway. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, 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 a brilliant house. <laughs> a brilliant house, brilliant building. I mean the entire campus, but of UVA and whatnot. But yeah, on the whole, not a great force. So speaking of um, speaking, kind of in that vein. So yesterday we went on Norris Lake in the boat, which is a TVA project, right? Yeah. So TV. So you know much more about this than I do. But the TVA is always interesting for me because we are in the part of the South that sees itself as very independent and hard scrabble and. Um, doesn't need, doesn't truck with the federal government, but is also the home to the TVA and uh, Oak Ridge. Yeah, t uh, TVA um, electrified the mountains and sort of brought people out, gave people work, um, uh, gave people power in their homes. Still keep our electricity relatively cheap. That's why we don't use gas uh, here very much. Oh, I didn't think of that. And um, the... My great-grandfather, for a while, worked as a lineman, and my grandfather was a lineman. My brother's been a lineman on and off, although not for TVA. My old sister was a carpenter who worked for TVA for a while. Were any of them linemen for the county? Uh, no, for the feds. Did they work the main road? No. Okay. Only the back roads. All right. Uh, but um, the... And then Knoxville, one of the main employers, the, the three main employers are the State University, the Federal Courts, and TVA, which are all, of course, government jobs. And maybe that's why Knoxville is less conservative than Knox County, yeah. which is massively more conservative. Yeah, I don't know. So where I'm from in Florida is the same case. It's like the entire economy is built around military bases. And all of the land, most of the land is seeded, was squatted out by fishermen and loggers and then seeded over from the military to 
people, but then people still will talk about not needing the government and, uh, right, making it on their own, which is always interesting. Well, and here, less than other parts of Appalachia, the people who really screwed the uh, mountain people over were the coal companies who came in and bought up the mineral rights, coal and oil companies, and then um, strip mined people's property. And yet, there's not doesn't seem to be as much resentment for that. Because they're very good at creating an ideology, right? And creating. So I've been thinking about this lately a lot. Like I don't think when I complain about uh, the Democratic Party and the left in this country, like they haven't done a good job of separating the culture of coal mining and the job of coal mining. So it's a lot like the Vietnam problem, where uh, the. Uh, soldiers come home and get spit on as if they had started the war and it was their idea to pursue it and uh, um, the, as if yeah as if the the people who are doing the grunt work are the people who are responsible for it and I understand the argument that mm. they were doing their part for it mm. but also uh, it's a lot easier to uh, single out and pick on individual soldiers than to take on Richard Nixon or to take on uh, the Black Diamond uh, Coal Company or any of the others. So a brief aside on that, do you know there's the someone, the best study that's been done on soldiers getting spit on after Vietnam found that they can't find any cases of a soldier being spit on after Vietnam? I don't know. I mean, I've heard people say that they were, but I, I don't know if that's strictly true. I think that in uh, some... Certainly in some um, cases, we can say that, at the very least, figuratively, they were spit on. Well, I think it's one of those things that like, very easily could have happened, but it's also grown into something in the imagination that we kind of talk about it all the time, like is something we're certain happened. Yeah, and if it is a metaphor, I guess we should say that it's a metaphor right. rather than saying, uh, 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 saying it as if it's a, an actual occurrence, but... Right, so this guy who did the study, I'll have to look this up more, but when I read it before, he started looking to see if there was any newspaper article from the time or any letter or anything like that where any case of someone being spit on, and he couldn't find it. Um, and he would look into stuff, and he couldn't find it and couldn't find it. But after his work was published, people wrote in and insisted that they did know of cases like that. So yeah. it's like one of those things that we talk about. I think it's like the hitchhiker being murdered or something. Well, the yeah, yeah. Although, also anecdotal, in that case, anecdotal evidence, why would you cover it in a, as a newspaper story except as a symbol of something else going on? Right. And um, um, the left wasn't particularly full of moderation in the way they were expressing their distaste no, for the I war. No, I don't think that at all. And I, and I think that a lot of people didn't distinguish between right. um, uh, soldiers and policymakers. Right. Yeah, so I think with the coal mines thing, and it's weird, Lindy, because uh, whatever, Blankenship just got out of jail. Mm -hmm. They've gone to jail for the, uh, and the 16 miners died, I think, because he was trying to save a few bucks on safety. Uh, but Don Blankenship, and so he's gotten out and taken to Twitter, and I can't tell. There's some people who really back him up on Twitter, and I can't tell if they're real miners or not. They might be, but where they're like, you're the best boss we've ever had. Uh, nobody understands anything about these coal mines. But anyway, I think the. The Democratic Party hasn't done a good job of saying, like, look, there's a definite, like, mountain culture, coal mining culture, and we appreciate, like, that you do really hard work, and separate that from the fact that, say, it's also an industry who's kind of just run its course, and I would add that it's heavily exploited you over generations and generations, but you don't even have to add that. You could just say, 
Like we under we don't want your lifestyle or your culture to end just because this kind of economic vehicle is ending. Well, and this kind of ties back to a conversation we were having earlier today about that a um, soldier on the ground isn't necessarily the most expert person. Hey, I didn't really say that. I didn't really say that. That wasn't me having the conversation. On uh, why, on the, how war should be waged and whether war should be waged. Right. And uh, working in the coal mine, um, especially working in the coal mine instead of finishing high school or going to college mm-hmm. or studying public policy or studying energy policy right. doesn't make you necessarily an expert on those things. Uh, it does make you absolutely an expert on the experience of uh, going right. underground every day and the difficulties and the dangers. And for an awful lot of people, it makes you fairly expert on labor relations and unionizing and a lot of other things, but uh, not necessarily on energy policy. Yeah, probably so. And I, someone else made the point recently I thought was good was that saying just saying we're going to replace coal jobs with renewable energy jobs isn't necessarily enough because coal jobs relatively were relatively good-paying jobs. Um, and renewable energy ones, you aren't guaranteed to have like a union job with benefits. Like You might be a part-time worker who has a certain skill set. Yeah, that's true. And the, uh, um, but the coal mining jobs, to the degree that they were... Uh, Good. There was a there was an awful lot of uh, exploitation of coal miners before unions managed to yeah. turn them into decent jobs. Oh, my favorite stat, my favorite recent stat, is that there are now more Whole Foods worker employees than there are coal miners in the entirety of America. Is it Whole Foods? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I Whole heard I heard something about the, that, but I forgot. I it thought it was like, I thought it was Walgreens or somebody. It probably applies to lots of those. I'd imagine yeah. it's it's not that many. It's just they've become like a totem for a certain kind of economic conversation. With like Cuban voters. Yeah, Cuban voters who are almost non-existent. Uh, yeah, coal and coal miners also like I believe the plurality of coal miners are in Wyoming, but we only talk about them as Appalachian coal miners because that's the what we picture. Uh, also, like, the, you know, there was the story this last week about, I believe Trump was promoting it that a new coal mine just opened in Pennsylvania. I don't know if you heard that. I but, didn't. You know, he's kind of claiming credit for it, but it was something that had started kind of under Obama, and it was new now, but it was a very particular kind of coal that's only used, I think, in the manufacture of steel. And so because of the process used to make it, you can't really... It's not any kind of coal that you can have at a remote location. It has to be kind of mined there and put into this process. So it's like this really kind of niche market for coal. I'm trying to remember. I used to know about coal because I studied geology in college about uh, anthracite and dolomite and uh, uh, what were the other types. But some of it's sort of spongy and cokey, um, and that could be it, but I'm not sure. I know nothing about coal. Um, well, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about. This is our brief podcast tonight since we're under fire. We're under heavy fire. I don't think we're going to do the full hour since we, we need to get Chad back in the saddle too. But what was the other thing I was going to talk about? Uh, we talked briefly today about uh, stories our parents told us about children who about were killed. Children. That's true. Well, this was, uh, we were talking about my grandmother had the story, and I, went, I can't remember who it was. I don't think that many people in Destin listen to this, so it probably won't matter. But there, in Destin, 
there was a buoy that had to be tended that was kind of a light buoy to mark the channel into Destin. This is before the jetties, before the bridge, all that. And um, the guy who was in charge, he got paid like monthly by the state. It's one of his jobs to go out and light the light the buoy. And he decided to take the children one day. So it was like his daughter, his son, who were a little bit older, like elementary school, and then the new baby. I don't know how new the baby was. But it was nighttime, and they went out East Pass, and the baby rolled off the back of the boat. And I don't think anyone noticed until they were gone. Um, and so, yeah, they lost the baby. And I just can't imagine, like, you have to row your boat, or how, what kind of boat it was, back to the house and explain to your wife that the baby rolled off the back of the boat. But I think the point of these stories, we'll move to yours in a second, there, there's, like, a period of time, I like that it's not now, in which that was not an irregular occurrence to have your children kind of meet unfortunate ends and often in kind of just the normal daily grind of work that happened. Yeah, there's a graveyard about um, um, maybe 50 yards up the hill from us here that is full of infant graves from back then. But I think they were mostly uh, crib deaths and stillbirths and things like that. Um, uh, right. But yeah. And uh, uh, cautionary tales, um, um, our grandmothers are really prone to tell them over and yeah, over Yeah, my grandmother's very much a worry ward, so, uh, yeah. But, I mean, I guess you would be when, like, what was it, like, three-fifths of the children died back then? I don't know if that's an accurate number, I'm making that up. Three-fifths is a lot. Well, my point is that God hates children, yep. and has proven it consistently over time. My grandmothers didn't tell those stories a lot, but I do remember just a lot of grisly stories about farm machinery and uh, um, um, uh, getting hit by the train and uh, I had a great uncle who was epileptic and uh, had a seizure and fell in the creek and drowned uh, that's a pretty grisly story Wait, who was it that got hit by the train that you were telling me about that was, an, uh, that was a great uncle I think or maybe even a great great uncle who there was a train track across the end of the driveway and he knew the train schedule and that day the train wasn't running on schedule, so he uh, pulled out in front of it. It was, I guess it would. I'm not. I'm not quite sure um, uh, which generation. Um, but of train. Which generation of uh, uncle? Because that side of the family kind of uh, split out. A lot of people went west, and so uh, to, I don't really know them. Nashville. No, all the way out to Oklahoma, actually. Uh, Were they Hokies? <clears throat> yeah, some of them got in touch with us. I guess it's been 30 years ago now, but uh, and told us the story of the family that left. We didn't know. They'd gone down to Arkansas and stole a traveling carnival, I think is the story. <laughs> and then, uh, How do you steal a traveling carnival? <laughs> I don't know. That was the story. Um, <laughs> that was, and, uh, I'm going to insert this in the middle of your story, uh, and you can come back to it, but this is... Uh, on the road, people know this, who'd make this drive. When you drive from like Tuscaloosa, or even up here, and you're making the shortcut to get to like Fort Walton and Destin, you go through Andalusia, Alabama, and along that route, there's three gigantic mansions uh, set off from the road. They look like uh, Dallas. Where do they live in Dallas? Who the, where JR are you in? South Fork. South Fork, like South Fork, these giant mansions. And I kept asking people, like, where does this money come from in Andalusia? I never got an answer. And then maybe my first year at Alabama, this. Uh, an older lady in my class, she said, oh, I know, that's circus money. <laughs> circus money, yeah, I guess there's big money in circus. These people weren't rich, they, uh, but they told about that um, the, the brother had uh, 
his front porch was where Sam Starr, Bell Starr's husband, got shot. You know, Bell Starr, the famous female cowboy. Oh, no, she's not Annie Oakley. I know Annie Oakley. Yeah, Annie Oakley. She was in the Wild West shows and stuff. Uh, Bell Starr was a little bit more rough and ready. Like an actual cowgirl. Yeah, but not a cowgirl, actually, just a, a figure from the Old West. I don't think she actually herded cows. Okay. But she was an outlaw, and uh, her husband, Sam Starr, was an Indian, and then I don't know if she ever remarried or not. The photos of her make her look a little bit like Abraham Lincoln. So no, maybe. Hot is what you're <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sandy hot. Like uh, um, uh, less beard. But, uh, 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 yeah, so th- that part of the uh, Here comes the Air Force. Happy Fourth of July. Yeah. Woohoo! The white phosphorus run, the Knoxville white phosphorus run. Yeah, that one sounds pretty Air much like Air Force Sign off on that patriotic note. Oh, you can keep going. There's, what was I gonna say about that? All right. What? All right. Okay. I don't know, uh, but I didn't know what else I was gonna say. We could sign off on being strafed by white phosphorus by the Air Force. <laughs> I can put in some uh, explosions at the end of it. The friendly fires uh, ended up the hill, I think. Fucking. Yeah. That was intense for a minute. That was hairy. I yeah. think we were in the shit briefly. Actually, my that line about uh, returning friendly fire, and it ties into Vietnam and coal mining. My dad was up covering the Harlan County coal strikes as a journalist. Oh, so he covered that. Yeah. That's fucking nice. And um, uh, so to interview the scabs, they had to fly over the picket line in a a um, helicopter. And um, the story that he tells is that they were flying not in but flying out and flying over the picket line and um, uh, the uh, people on the picket line started shooting up at them or at least shooting and uh, the pilot who had been in Vietnam reached under his seat and pulled out a handgun and started firing back and the journalists in the uh, helicopter said hey 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 those are the strikers shooting and he said I return friendly fire (laughs) That's great. Did your dad like mix it up in Harlan County? I can't. I can't see him being neutral on that one. Um, I mean, I'm sure that he was pro-union because he was always pro-worker and pro-working class. But I'm not sure exactly what he did. I mean, he was a journalist, so he.